From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. California is the world's fifth largest economy. Agriculture in California represents $33 billion in the economy with $21 billion on fruit and nut crops. Land-based businesses in California, including golf courses, have been on the front line of climate change, drought, and now fires. This is the Fire and Water episode of Frankly Speaking, as we speak with President of Irrigation and Turf Services, Mike Huck, based in Southern California. I've known Mike since his time with the United States Golf Association as a regional agronomist, who has become a strong advocate for water use issues, water policy, and more recently speaking about the fires ravaging California. I got a chance to visit with Mike after the 2016 rains that alleviated the drought and in the midst of the fires in 2018. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Mike Huck. I think California's on fire. How's it going out there? Well, uh, yeah, California is on fire. We've got fires all over the entire state. I think there's eight total at the moment. There's one of rather significant size in Southern California and one that isn't too far from that. They basically evacuated the whole city of Malibu for a few days now. And Malibu, if you're not familiar with it, is 21 miles long along the coast. So they evacuated the whole thing. They've had Pacific Coast Highway shut down. Uh, a lot of homes burned of uh, a lot of famous people uh, out in the hills, out in the uh, southern Ventura County and northern L.A. County. It's it's quite a mess. So what is the nature of this? Um, it seems like it's been drier in the past, but I guess I'm wondering if the rainy weather you guys had in 2017, I believe it was rainy in 2017, that leads to the creation of more fuel available to burn. So talk for a minute. What, what, why are we having so many fires right now? Absolutely, Frank. That's a part of it. Another part of it was an interesting article I just read about a week ago. In fact, I looked the link back up this morning and refreshed my memory. A fire researcher from UC Santa Barbara was saying these should not come as a surprise to us. A lot of these areas have burned before in the past. If you look back historically, we can map the areas where the Santa Ana winds, these high-speed warm winds that blow for days on end, where they are going to basically focus. And he had a map, the, the big fire that's been so destructive up in Northern California, the Paradise, that burned basically the whole city of Paradise. They lost 6,400 homes and buildings and businesses in the last few weeks up there. He had this map in the in the article that showed in 2008 it burned north of there and south of there, and now the fire line is circling that same exact area and filling that whole area in. And so there's probably some better strategic planning that could be done on these things. I think his point was partially that this is an event that's going to happen every so many years because the fuel builds back up. Right. That's right. And then we get a dry spell and, and we've got all this fuel and you just put one and one together and you get two. And again, adding to the fuel is the idea that we've gotten good at fighting fires so that when areas don't burn, they've got more fuel to burn even more. So some of the debate, and I think this is, I wonder if this is happening with the federal government as well, 
a lot of times the best thing to do is to let these things burn, but they have enormous economic damage that they inflict. Is that the current conversation? That's part of it. I read an article, and this goes back several years ago, and I've seen this brought up again, where when you get into Northern California, where it's more trees than it is our coastal sage environment down here in Southern California, but they were talking about the population of trees in these areas, that since we've started to fight fires and we no longer log these areas because of environmentalists wanting to protect the old growth, that now we've got a population of tree density, basically, more trees per acre, uh, so to speak, than what our our uh, historical precipitation can support. Mm. And so now, you know, it's kind of like uh, you and I sit down with a six-pack and we each have a few beers and we're happy, but we invite seven more people to join us with a six-pack. Well, somebody's not going to be happy. <laughs> and so we've got these trees that are not getting their, you know, the amount of water that they necessarily need to stay healthy and particularly with pine trees where you need the sap flow to ward off the, the bores and things like that that do the devastation and the damage to them and kill them and create that dry fuel, as we're talking about, it, this all just you know multiplies on itself, more or less. So thank you for bringing up the role that weather plays. And, you know, since we're having you talking from California, we're, we're going to focus our conversation on the two biblical items of fire and rain. So let's start with rain here. You know, uh, some of our conversations, especially from a few years ago, Mike, have probably been dominated by, you know, what was the impact of the drought? How have we recovered from the drought? But let's start with just the rainfall that you've seen over the last several years. We mentioned earlier that it was substantial last year, enough to build some fuel throughout the West that's now on fire. How has the rainfall patterns been over the last several years? Well, you know, we had one good wet year that really saved us from the drought. Uh, I want to say that was the 216-217 winter, as I recall it. Since then, it stayed, oh, we had a little bit of rain last year, but not as much as we'd like, perhaps, as we go through the 217-218 winter. We're hoping for more. We had an inch of rain earlier in October, which is very strange uh, to get that much that early. Uh, we'd certainly love to see it. There's, I haven't been reading much. Uh, you know, I track all this stuff and have all these Google alerts set up to kind of monitor this. Right. And I haven't seen much, but a few articles about a potential El Nino, but El Nino doesn't guarantee we're going to get a lot of rainfall and back and forth, a lot of, uh, oscillation back and forth on that subject. So, where we're headed next, I don't know, but our reservoirs in general, Frank, are in pretty good shape within the state, with the exception of uh, two or three of them, and one of them being Oroville, which had the, they had to lower that one intentionally to do the repair work on it. Um, you may have remembered that problem. Yeah, so before you get into the storage, because I want to talk about that, there's a lot of politics around that right now. I want to talk about the snowpack. How have the winters been, right? Because you guys are so dependent, and certainly the Northern California and much of the West Coast, so dependent on the snowfall. How has the snowfall been in the mountains the last several years? And is that why the reservoirs are doing good? Well, yeah, two years ago, we had a huge wet winter. We got tremendous amount of snow and it was wet snow. Last year, we didn't do quite as well. And the last few years... We haven't done well at all in the Colorado River system, which you know goes out to the northern Rockies, parts of 
Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, right. all the way on down, and, and that feeds Southern California. The Northern California snowfall is equally important for Southern California because about a third of our water comes out of Northern California, yeah. and about a third of our water comes out of the Colorado River system, and then the last third is local supply from local mountains, groundwater, uh, you know, and rainfall and groundwater recharge, things like that. Okay. So... Uh, we're we're okay. Our reservoirs are, you know, we we've got enough to get keep going. What happens this year could determine what goes on next year as far as will we hear any calls for rationing or anything like that. Well, okay. So before we get to the rationing part, I want to ask you before we leave all the sources. Uh, we've talked about rainfall. We've talked about the reservoirs. We've talked about snowfall. But one of the chronic issues I think you and I have mentioned in the past is none of these things seem to really help the groundwater and the subsidence that continues to occur throughout, especially in the farming regions. Where are the groundwater levels at? Good question. You know, since we last talked, there's been a big push forward for the SGMA to be put in effect, and that's the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Believe it or not, you know, California is always a leader in trends and a leader in environmental things. California was absolutely the last state in the union behind Texas <laughs> to put in groundwater management rules and regulations and laws. Hmm. And the thing that makes it so hard to track is that it is being done on a local basis by basin. And basins don't follow nice defined lines like of counties or whatever it might be. So everybody has to kind of get involved that uses groundwater and protect their own interests and things like that. I do believe that there's been less of it in the news and more about the formation of these SGMA management areas. So I I don't believe it's quite the concern it was two years ago with the drought. But there is a concern there, and that's what the SGMA is all about, is trying to get that groundwater back into control And I think when we talked the last time, we may have talked a little bit about there was some work being done up in parts of the Central Valley where this was the biggest problem with the subsidence of the land Mm -hmm. and the groundwater overdraft, where there was some almond farmers Mm -hmm. that were actually flooding their orchards during the wintertime when the trees are dormant and, you know, the leaves are gone. Uh, because they felt that that would be the safest time of the year for recharge, not doing any, hopefully not doing any damage to roots, any disease or anything like that. And they were flooding entire areas purposefully to try and do some recharge. And uh, the University of California at Davis was doing some monitoring of this and, you know, had their scientists out working with these farmers on that on a kind of a small scale to get a few people volunteer to do that and look at what kind of impact they could be made. I'm not certain of the results of it. I think it was positive, and I haven't read anything about any problems with the trees, so cross our fingers that, you know, maybe we can do more of that if we get another wet season. Okay, listen, Mike, let's take a break here. We've already gotten into this a little bit, and I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about government stuff because I know that's a big part of the debate. (laughs) (laughs) As he laughs. We'll be right back with Mike Huck on Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. 
Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Mike, when we left off, we were talking about that Strategic Groundwater Management Act. And, of course, a big part of water, wherever it's scarce, is the politics and the governing of that. It was very shocking to hear that California and Texas were among the last. But that's, I imagine, somewhat to do with the convoluted governing bodies that oversee the way water works. And so I want to shift gears here now and talk about something recently that's being impacted by the way the federal government is approaching things these days with Donald Trump's administration there. And it has to do with um, restrictions in Sacramento and the San Joaquin River Valley Water that's uh, set aside, as you've taught us in the past, for ecological purposes, and in this case, to sustain fish populations in the San Joaquin Valley, the river delta down there. So there is a bit of question about how much is needed for that. And of course, the thing that's interesting is they're preserving that amount of water, and yet the fish populations, by some data, looks like they're continuing to decline. Some people are pointing to striped bass as an invasive. Some people are pointing to wastewater issues. But the long and the short of it is that there seems to be two issues that the Trump administration has uh, stumbled into here. One is, is preserving this water necessary for these fish? Because they seem to be screwed anyway. That's one way to look at it. <laughs> the, the, other, the other way to look at it is, why can't we get more storage up north? Because even when that San Joaquin River Valley and that Sacramento Valley is full, there's a limited amount that they're allowed to ship to Southern California, and consequently, they're dumping it out into the ocean. So, all of that as a backdrop, Mike, what is the issue with improving the storage well, that's the question. What's the issue uh, that's preventing us from improving the storage in Northern California and allowing that water to be released to Southern California? Well, I think part of it's a bit of nimbyism that if we increase our storage capacity dramatically, that means we can build that many more homes. There's a wide faction of the environmental movement that whether they truly are concerned about the environment more than they are, you know, another million homes being built or whatever it might be or not, I, I don't know what the true motivation is in all cases. I think there's a little bit of each going on at all times. Uh, there's been some talk about the Sites Reservoir, which is a huge valley uh, that they would dam up and, and create a tremendous amount of storage. It got a lot of chatter after the last drought, but I haven't heard much about it of recently. I still I read something about it well, just a few months ago that, you know, it's still on the table. They're still looking at it. But to get past all the environmental reviews and restrictions, it is quite a challenge. The review that had to be done at the state level for construction of any new storage 
you had to list the benefits of it. It's not just the benefits from the standpoint of we're going to supply more drinking water to the masses, but, oh, are there recreational benefits, are there environmental benefits, and all this stuff. And when one of these reservoir projects that was on the table, I don't know if it was sites or another one, because there was a couple of them that were under proposal at the time, was proposed that they turned it down and they scored it with a one point out of 10 or something like that because they didn't bring up other benefits that they felt should be. And I mean, there, there's a bias, in my opinion, in the scoring process mm. that's against building these reservoirs when they're looking at it from that perspective. Okay, so let me ask you, since you brought it up, one of the things the Trump administration is doing uh, appears to be streamlining review of these Western water projects. So you would imagine a president with um, sort of real estate mindset. Um, I hadn't thought about the population issue when I mentioned that, but makes sense. What is, I mean, in general, it seems like California has now made permanent restrictions that you can only use 55 gallons of water a day inside. Um, they're restricting water use to farms. Uh, I heard there's talk about a Shasta Dam uh, expansion. So yep. do you see uh, that this is going to be blocked or maybe it's quiet now and then all of a sudden the rapid review of these projects is, is going to move them along? I don't know if we can get the rapid review moving them along. A lot of it will depend upon the attitude of our new governor, who self-imposedly in his ads during the campaign was, we're the resistance to Donald Trump. Mm. He would say that right out loud on TV. So depending how he feels, Gavin Newsom, our new governor, feels about these projects, I think that's going to have a lot of bearing on them. Lifting federal restrictions only goes so far because we have these state guidelines. One of them is called CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. And whenever you do a uh, any kind of municipal project, you have to do the environmental impact study under CEQA, uh, is my understanding. And and it's just it's just another layer that bogs these things down and adds a lot of cost to them. Uh, it it sometimes can require years and years of environmental study. Um, like I say, I, I think a lot of it's going to depend upon the attitude of uh, Governor Newsom on uh, new water storage, what his thinking is, where our former governor, Jerry Brown, very pragmatic in these areas and more open to those discussions, maybe. Huh. I don't know. I don't know what the new governor's attitude is going to be, to be honest, Frank. Well, we know for sure that Jerry Brown uh, didn't necessarily care much for green grass. When the drought hit, uh, he targeted <laughs> and, and gave it a pretty good, pretty good whopping. And I guess let me go back to that 55 gallons per day. Is that a onerous yep. restriction on the average citizen in California, 55 gallons of interior water use per day? No, not really. We got down pretty close to that during the drought through some self-imposed just being real efficient. That came in under new legislation that got uh, brought to the table due to the drought, AB 1668 and SB 606. They were companion goals in the State House and Legislature, and or uh, State House and Senate, I should say, and and that put the onus on the water districts to build a water budget based around these numbers. 
The other thing that that same bill did that's going to affect us outdoors with our water use is it's requiring the water districts to map all the landscape water use. Now, this is urban water use only. Ag water use is going to be separate from this. Uh, I do believe there was some, there's some language in these bills for ag, but when we talk about urban, because that's where golf is going to be mostly involved, they are going to map everybody's landscape area and put numbers to that based upon your ET climate, basically. And the water districts are going to have to come up with these numbers to submit to the state to justify their water allocations that they're given. Well, but but allocations are not any different to the industry. There's been allocations used for golf, water stuff forever. Is it new because it's got to be mapped on a landscape scale, or is it new because this is more restrictive to golf courses? Yes. Well, and I think where this is all going, Frank, is this is going to go the way of Arizona and Nevada, where you have a set use of water for your landscape, and then you pay a premium for every drop you use over that set volume. All right. Well, that's perfect. Listen, Mike, let's take another break because, in fact, we do have golf course superintendents that listen to this show, so we ought to talk about golf courses. We ended up this time with golf courses, and we'll come back after this message and continue the conversation with Mike Huck about golf courses and water use in California. This is Frank Rossi. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm here with Mike Huck. And Mike, when we left off, we had just mentioned the word golf courses as we began to talk about the potential use of the allocation approach like done in other states is maybe now going to get done in California. And so let's talk about golf courses well, as they exist now in California. I, I follow your Twitter feed uh, very closely. And of course, that's of course how we know you've become this real uh, knowledge center for us on understanding these issues, not just in California, but in California as a harbinger for other places as people start to scrutinize the use of water. Now, I've had the pleasure over the last couple of years to be visiting golf courses in Southern and Northern California, and I've been talking to the superintendents, and I have to say I was in Southern California just in August, and one of the things I learned was there was a certain number of golf courses uh, in the uh, Southern California area where I was visiting that were telling me, yeah, there used to be five more golf courses, and now they can't get water. It's not they can't afford it. It's they can't get it. And so I wonder, are we now starting to see the dominoes starting to fall for where water's going to decide that these golf courses are closing? I suppose that's a possibility. I've not heard of a course that couldn't get water. 
unless it was groundwater issue or something like that where they couldn't deepen their wells. I'm aware of one of those that had an illegal well oh boy. that they weren't supposed to have, and they wanted to deepen it, and the water district found out, and they kind of frowned upon that. I, you know, it all goes back to recycled water, Frank, and that is your safest supply, but even that got choked off a little bit. Uh, we had calls for 10 to 20% conservation during the drought on recycled water in, in areas that were impacted where they didn't have enough storage to supply every drop, and they were, in years past, supplementing with potable water in the summertime when the peaks are there that exceed their production. Uh, yeah, there's courses that are closing, but usually what I'm hearing is the cost of the water mm. is uh Driving the problem and the fact that the course may have been losing money every year and they just can't keep up with keeping the bottom line balanced with the cost of water. Well, there you go. So that's a that's, of course, a big uh, learning for a guy from the Northeast. When you go out to Southern California or even Northern California and you talk to superintendents and they're talking about anywhere from a monthly bill of. Forty to fifty thousand to as much as a hundred and ten, a hundred and twenty thousand dollars per month for water. I gotta believe that's an enormous financial strain on uh, even a you know relatively healthy golf course. A million dollars off the top, Mike's got to be pretty onerous to have to pay that bill all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at that, Frank, and just say that a million dollars and you're doing 50,000 rounds a year, that's $20 per greens fee, and you haven't even mowed the greens in the morning. (laughs) And so you start looking at all the other costs associated. That's where the greens fees are going up. And the question is, how sustainable is that for the average daily fee golf course? Or are we going to have to really change our expectation levels of conditioning as the guy that wants to pay 40 bucks a round? Well, let's explore both of those things. Let's start out by asking, uh, first of all, do you think they're going to close before they offer them uh, worse conditions? Or, I mean, what is the tolerance of the average California golfer to crappy golfing conditions? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know if we've gotten far enough along in that. The courses that have been closing have been the ones that have been losing money. And a lot of times I think their water bill is just their excuse but they haven't been doing enough greens fees no matter how they maintain the golf course. It's a supply and demand issue, you know, as we've talked before, that we had this great run-up in construction of golf courses in the early 90s, and now we've kind of hit this reality zone where we've got areas that are so saturated. Uh, San Diego County, there was an article, gosh, I don't know how many months ago, but they lost like nine or ten golf courses since the economic downturn or or maybe even after. So it, it's all of them were complaining that they couldn't make enough money while they, there's not enough golfers to fill them all. Has the pressure around the cost of water, the quality expected, I, I know we've talked about this in the past, and I want to ask you again, do you see on a regular basis when you're out and about with your clients or at education meetings, talking to superintendents, visiting clubs, Do you see them starting to make bigger adaptations to using less water, or do you just basically see them like the almond farmers, you know, essentially oblivious to the fact that water is is an issue because they can afford it and, 
and put it out there at will. Uh, which way do you see it going? Do you see them making dramatic adaptations? And I'm not talking about ripping grass out, right? We're past that. I'm talking about um, changing grasses. I'm talking about irrigating less area. I'm talking about more precise irrigation. Do you see those adaptations becoming more common or are they just plugging along like uh, nothing's happening? No, it's going on, Frank, but those are big ticket items. A lot of times like changing out grasses, you know, you're going to sod your fairways. That's 35 acres that I'm not sure what sod costs installed right now, but you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. What's your return on investment over the water and things like that? Because when you're, when you're changing out grasses on a fairway, you're talking only a few percentage change, you know, in your water consumption a lot of times. It's not, most people have gone away from cool season grasses due to the drought and overseeding, at least on the coast. It's still prevalent in the desert areas. Otherwise, they'd have brown turf all winter. But, you know, there's people looking at wetting agents and different products to extend the use of the water and things like that. But it, I tell you, that it's still the number one one is ripping out grass for people that haven't done it yet. Huh. And, and that's just an immediate return on investment almost once you get the, the drought-tolerant plant materials established. Now we're running into new problems, though, with the, those areas that have been done that, well, we planted them a little bit too dense maybe here or there, and the ball rolls into it, and the golfer can't find his ball. And, you know, it looked real good when the plants were little and tiny when they were first planted, but now it's kind of turned into a jungle. And so, it, you know, it's like we've reinvented the wheel out in the deep rough, and now we got to figure out how to manage that wheel out there <laughs> a little bit. And so some of those new challenges are popping up. So let me, let's talk a little bit about the future as we wrap up, and that is – you know, the use of remote sensing and aerial devices, un- unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, if you will, uh, maybe in-ground moisture sensors. Do you see California with the cost of water and the demand for precise irrigation? Do you see a greater uptake of new technologies regarding this issue or is it still pretty much confined to you know, ET-based head control and making sure that the water's getting put out uniformly. I know that's been your area. Has the use of technology expanded at all to add the precision to the process? Well, yeah, in some respects. Like we've talked before that, you know, you don't walk into anybody's shop anymore hardly and not see more than one moisture TDR meters or, you know, or POGOs or whatever brand they typically prescribe to. You find multiples of them now, and, and they're looking a lot closer to the water use, not just on greens, but throughout. I think soil moisture sensors, as the technology improves and we get more and more, the new irrigation systems or the two-wire systems, I think, are going to be more adaptable to these things, and you're going to see more of that going on there as opposed to the old central satellite model where you had your 110 volt feed your satellites and then that stepped it down to 24 volt to the sprinklers but we didn't even though we could communicate back to a computer we'd have to run wires all the way back there well we may be able to tap right into that two wire communication and put a sensor on there that feeds right back to the computer without running all this wire back to that satellite location so i think as the technology changes and this is going to take a 20 30 year time frame Come on. Fill out. You got to be kidding me, Mike. You guys are paying a million dollars for water. You mean to tell me no one's motivated for this? 
oh, they're motivated, but the challenges of installing some of this, the cost involved and the labor involved, and then if you're sitting on a 15- or 20-year-old irrigation system that's getting ready for replacement, well, I'm going to wait five or so years and do it when I do that system. What about aerial stuff? What about drones and satellite imagery? Are you seeing them being increased in use, and do you think there's a value in some of that data? Have you at yourself played around with that data? I've not played around with that myself. I do think there's probably some value there. There's some newer technologies with satellite data that where they can measure ET or at least get a, a closer handle on it perhaps than we can just with a weather station sitting up near the shop. And I think that all that's going to be refined and, and find its way into our industry. That may find its way in faster than the individual moisture sensors out, you know, that you plant out in the fairway in, in different locations. Okay. Because it, it's more universal and you don't need to go out there and hardwire things back to a satellite like I was talking about. Okay. All right. Listen, Mike, if you had to look in your crystal ball... Do you think a lot's going to change? If I talk to you in another 18 months, do you have a feeling that we're going to have the same kind of conversation around, you know, the need for increased storage, the need for increased precision? A lot of your savings come from ripping grass out. We continue to see a steady decline in interest in golf. I mean, we celebrate, (laughs) you know, how few we (laughs) lose, you know, that when we lose less one year than the year before, do you yeah. see this catching up in California? And uh, I know municipalities are starting to confront this, especially when the land value for development's very high. You said San Diego closed about nine courses. If we talked in another 18 months, do you think there's going to be another percentage of closures? And will there be much change in the way we think about water out there? Well, I, I think that we've probably... At least in some areas, there's still maybe some areas that are saturated. But I, I think we're finally hitting that balance point where we've got enough tea times that are being filled that we're not seeing the, the contraction as much as we did just a few years ago. I don't hear people talking about that nearly as much, and I don't read about as many courses well, that's a problem. There was one in Northern California just this last week that's going on the chopping block that the county or city bought, and they're recommending to close it. And it's because they were losing 150 grand a year and the cost of water. They're yeah. using as the scapegoat on it. Whether that's the whole issue or not, or whether there could be some changes made there, you know, each course is so individual, Frank. Soil types vary so much, and your water quality and your water cost and everything, you know, we, we vary from a couple hundred bucks an acre foot to four grand, you know, 4,500 up in parts of uh, the central coast and north coast. It's just such a wide variance. It's hard to say what's going to happen. Well, it's a sign of a good ecosystem, right? There's diversity, so it's pretty stable. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Just to close this out a little bit on this subject, the, the industry got together after the drought with the model water landscape ordinance that's in the state. And we had never had a seat at the table. And a guy you probably should talk to sometime, Craig Kessler at the SCGA, their government affairs guy, kind of headed this up. And he got on the committee and, and sat in on behalf of golf. And we actually drafted some guidelines that we're willing to work with as far as reducing our footprint of water 
uh, as time goes on with new construction would be under one guideline and renovations would be under another guideline. And should we ever get to the point that there's going to be a water budget thrown at existing properties that have not done any reductions or anything like that, we would do that at that time. But the problem with the uh, water landscape ordinance is it only kicks in when there's a permit pulled on your site for any kind of construction or anything for reconstruction and new construction has to follow it to the letter. As an industry, we kind of agreed that we don't need to have turf wall to wall. There was one person that descended on that who's a developer. Uh, you can probably figure out why, because everybody wants green grass border in their backyard, not desert plants. Yeah, but I think the key is that the industry is sitting at the table, coming with concessions that they're willing to make, that they want to base on science and also sustain their business at the same time. So this is really a positive thing, right? Well, that was the exact reasoning. We felt that we could better approach this regulatory body, uh, let's call it that, Department of Water Resources, and put our plan on the table that we would agree to that would be reasonable for us to function under and not harm our business model and yet reach the goals of the 20% water savings that the state wants to impose by 2020, which you know, is right upon us. Right. But to try and help reach these goals and not be dictated to by someone who doesn't understand the industry. And that's what my biggest worry always was. We were going to have someone who thought, well, this sounds like a good idea. I heard they did something like this over here in this state. Why don't we do it? Mm-hmm. California is its own special place with all these different climate zones because of all the mountains and yep. you know north and south variation in climate. Uh, we just thought it was best that we could draft something as an industry that everybody agreed on and and we got everybody within the six GCSA chapters, the six uh, local chapters involved and uh, drafted this up and presented it to them. They gave us feedback. And then we, you know, did it again, back to them and back. And then we presented it to the state. It hasn't been accepted yet, but it, it's in their hands. And whether it'll go through this year or the next go around in three more years, when they refine the, the landscape ordinance again, we don't know. But like I say, we we felt it was better to uh, control our own destiny than let it be handed to us on a platter that we may not like. Mike, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Frank. It's always great to have this conversation with a fellow Packer fan, and we are hurting. We are in a sad (laughs) state of affairs this year, brother. Oh, that we are. I think we're going to be having a new head coach next year. Uh, That's a good possibility. Okay. Thank you for joining us on this California-centric episode of Frankly Speaking from the hills of central New York, and the heart of the Finger Lakes, I'm Frank Rossi.